Am I on? All right. First John 5, 6 through 12. The title of, this, of the message this morning is, Can I Get a Witness? Well, have you ever wondered how the first version of the telephone game went? You know the game I'm talking about, right? Somebody has a, a sentence, they say a sentence, and then they whisper it in the next person's ear, and then they whisper it in the next person's ear, and on down the line. And by the time you get to the end of the line, you compare how similar what was said in the beginning is to what was said in the end. My guess is that the first time that this happened in human history was probably a little ways you know, into the story of human history, maybe maybe Adam and Eve were sitting around with their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids, and and one of the one of the great grandkids maybe said, "Hey, great grandma and grandpa, let's tell us about you know tell us about you guys being created. Tell us about what happened in the Garden of Eden." And and on it goes, right? So they start telling the story, and by the time they get to the end, who knows what the what the story is? Or maybe it's uh, Cain's son Enoch. He told the story of Cain and Abel as his father had maybe retold it. And maybe the details get a little twisted at times. I think this telephone game is kind of a parable for life. It can be a parable for human history. On it goes, generation after generation. People telling their own story. People telling their own version of what they think really happened. Of trying to interpret the events based on their own life. And that's the whole point of the telephone game, to show how the information gets changed and passed on. And there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of static in the phone lines, trying to tell us as God's people, as believers in what God has already communicated clearly to us in his holy word, trying to tell us that this book is not really a reliable source of information. To say that, well, this is just, it's just stories, a bunch of stories that have been passed down throughout the generations, right? It's a bunch of stories that have been twisted. You know, Adam and Eve told their version of the story, and who knows who wrote it down. You know, Moses told his version of the story, and on it goes, and things get changed and twisted. I think the problem with that critique is The real problem is not with the transmission of the information. That's a surface issue. And I think we should be rightfully skeptical about the the transmission of false information. If false information is being passed on, we should be skeptical of that. But the main problem with this picture, the deeper issue, is our hearts and a desire to cover up our own sin. Or our desire to falsely accuse others or blame others for things that have happened, or to fabricate the story, even if it's just a little bit, to tell our own version of the story. And we're going to see in our passage today a contrast of of that way of of thinking and that way of things being. We're going to see the faithfulness of God's testimony. We're going to see how he has communicated to us the most important truth that we need to know in our lives and why it matters. So let's go to God's word, his word that he, by his spirit, has preserved for us so that we might know him as we ought. 1 John chapter 5, 6 through 12. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. 
This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this reminder of the testimony that you have spoken, the true testimony that the Spirit of God has testified that you have spoken concerning your Son, that we can know him and have life in him. God, would our eyes be opened, would our hearts be open to receive this word from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're just visiting with us, uh, we have been going through the letter of 1 John uh, for the last 11 weeks. Um, This is week 12. Our last uh, time in 1 John will be next week, but it has been uh, an interesting journey there. It's been a challenging letter in a lot of ways. Uh, if you've been following along with us, there's been a lot of repetition. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, words that we've kind of had to dig into and kind of figure out what John is saying. Uh, we've also had this, these opponents that John is, is speaking to, even though he's not directly speaking right to the opponents. He's kind of talking to the Christians in the church and addressing the things that the opponents are teaching. Uh, so that's been an interesting dynamic. And this today, I think, is one of the few passages uh, where the section we're looking at really has a a very logical progression and a very kind of a linear flow to it. A lot of John's stuff has been very repetitive. He keeps coming back to different things. This passage is actually not very hard to follow. Uh, if If I gave you the challenge to just sit down and outline this, you'd probably come up with almost the exact same thing that I did. It really kind of, it just, the argument flows. Um... That said, uh, there is something very challenging in this passage that has kind of made commentators uh, scratch their heads. So let's dive in. Uh, we'll get started right away here with, uh, if you're following along on the outline in the, on the insert there, the first thing we're going to look at is three united testifiers. Three united testifiers. So we want to ask first, well, who are they? Who are these united testifiers? What do they testify about and what do they agree upon. John begins here, verse 6, this is he, okay, this is he, well, who's he talking about? We need to go back to verse 5, which we looked at last week. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he's talking here about Jesus, the Son of God. This is he, so that's pretty straightforward. But then John adds this odd description of Jesus. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. 
One commentator said this is the most perplexing phrase in the letter and one of the most perplexing phrases in all of the New Testament. Okay? Now, if you hear that, you're like, well, why? Like, we know what water is and we know what blood is. And we'll see in a second here why this is such a perplexing phrase. He came by water and blood. And then John adds this. He says in the second half of verse 6, Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Okay, so this gives us a little insight into maybe what's going on. We know that John is addressing his opponents, those who are teaching a false gospel. And we don't know exactly what all of their teachings were. But I think looking at this phrase is probably the best way that we can understand this idea of water and blood is by looking at it in relationship to these false teachers. Um, Because John says here in verse, second half of verse 6, not by water only, but by water and blood. So it would appear that the opponents are saying that Jesus came by the water, but that he didn't come by the blood. So John is trying to set things straight here. Okay, so that's helpful. It's a first step, but we still don't know exactly what he means here. Uh, one, of the, one of the views in this early Gnostic group, one of the t- common teachings, was that in his baptism, G- the Spirit descended upon Jesus, and in that moment, these people would say, that is when Jesus became the Christ, that the Christ essentially, through the Spirit coming down, the Christ descended upon Jesus, as, and he became the Christ in that time. But then they would say, before he died on the cross, the Christ lifted off of him and, and went into heaven or wherever he went because the Christ, they would say, the Christ couldn't die. So they had this separation of, of what they believed about Jesus' deity and his humanity. And that's one of the main issues that John is, is arguing against. So this, I think, helps us to make sense of John's argument here that Jesus came by the water I think speaking about his baptism, that Jesus was baptized, and that was the beginning of him being publicly identified as the Son of God, being publicly identified as the Christ. And he came by the blood, meaning his death on the cross, the end of his ministry, the completion of his earthly ministry was marked by this, by him coming by the blood. Well, throughout, we don't get a lot of help necessarily from church history on this because throughout church history, there have been a lot of different views. Uh, One view that was held at the time of the Reformation by Luther and Calvin and others is that the water and the blood referred to the sacraments. Uh, Now, there are a lot of reasons why this doesn't really work because blood, even though the, the wine represents blood, it's not actually blood in itself. So there's not that connection to the sacraments. That wouldn't really make sense. The second one is also an interesting one. This is, was Augustine's view, so going back pretty far into church history, is that when the, the soldier took his spear and he pierced Jesus' side and the water and the blood came out, that that was uh, what the water and the blood is talking about. And then the third view, which is the view that's held today by most conservative scholars, uh, there's a few little minor tweaks to this, but too technical, uh, but it basically is that the, what I, the one I already shared, that Jesus' baptism, when he came and began his earthly ministry, he came by the water and he came by the blood, meaning his death on the cross. This was a view that was held as early as uh, the late 2nd century by Tertullian. Uh, so 
doesn't always mean it's the best view because it's the oldest, uh, but in this case, I would, I would submit to you that that's probably the, the closest view of what John is talking about. But regardless of that, uh, even if we don't know exactly what John is talking about, John locates the importance of the testimony in the third person of the Trinity. He says there at the end of verse 6, because the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Verses 7 and 8, we see here that all three testify. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. I think what John is pointing to here, and you're probably familiar with this if you've read your Bible, but the importance of having multiple witnesses. In the Old Testament, in uh, Numbers chapter 35 and in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there were certain things, specifically murder, where the punishment for murder was was being put to death. But you could not be convicted of murder and put to death on the basis of one witness. And obviously we can imagine why that would be the case, right? I mean, I can't just go and say, hey, I saw so-and-so kill someone because I want that person to die. There's no other witnesses. And then so-and-so just gets put to death based on my false witness. So two or three witnesses had to be had to come together to affirm that, that something had happened. Uh, and that principle actually is carried over in, in the New Testament by Jesus. He speaks about it in John chapter 8 when he's talking to the religious leaders. He says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the father who sent me bears witness about me. So he's saying, believe me. I'm coming, I'm bearing witness about myself, and now we're kind of seeing John writing, you know, a generation later, Jesus isn't here anymore, but if we go back to the beginning of the letter of, of 1 John, he talks about how they were eyewitnesses, so this eyewitness account that the apostles have of Jesus in the flesh really means something and really counts for something. So here, John is talking about the spirit and the water and the blood, And I think what he's trying to communicate is that God has testified to the world about the truth of who Jesus is, both by his spirit, which is eternal and divine, and by the historical events of Jesus' life and ministry, his baptism and his death. So there's the divine witness that's true, that's infallible, and then there's a witness of the events that people actually saw happen. People saw Jesus get baptized. People saw Jesus die on the cross. And those testimonies, those witnesses all come together to to be a strong witness that can't be denied. The emphasis here, I think, is on the fact that the Spirit is the truth. Jesus' clearest teaching about the Holy Spirit, his, his teachings about the Holy Spirit, were in the upper room discourse in John chapter 13 to 17. If you're getting tired of me repeating that and telling you to go read it, you only have to hear me say that one more week. I might say it next week. I've probably said it every week, but really 1 John, this letter of 1 John is really just a recap of the upper, much of what Jesus taught in the upper room discourse in John chapter 13 to 17. So many of the themes about abiding and, and believing, these are all things that Jesus talked about. But listen, so, so John here says the spirit is the truth. I'm going to read three short sections, John 14, John 15, and John 16. Listen to what Jesus says about the Spirit being the truth, and and listen for other themes that we've been talking about in 1 John. John chapter 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John fifteen twenty six and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay, if anyone wants to ask, sorry, I'm getting away from this for a second, but if anyone asks you, like, what is, what's the Holy Spirit about? Like, is it just, are we supposed to just, like, you know, speak in tongues and do, like, experience all this crazy stuff? Like, why did the Holy Spirit come? The Holy Spirit came primarily to bear witness about Jesus and to point to Jesus. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, you know, tell all my charismatic friends, like, you can't believe in gifts of the Spirit and things like that. But the primary reason is to point away from himself. It's not to draw attention to himself. So anytime there's talk of the Holy Spirit and attention is being brought to, to us and what we do, then, you know, we need to say, well, the main reason the Holy Spirit came is to bear witness about Jesus. Verse 27 and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So here Jesus is saying, the Spirit has come and has borne witness, and now you're going to go out and you're going to bear witness about me because you're filled with my Spirit. You're going to testify about me. That's what the Spirit is all about, is pointing to Jesus. So when we go out and talk to people, the Spirit inside of us should be pointing people to Jesus and not pointing them to us. John 16, 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying here, and John is saying, the spirit of truth has come, and he has testified, and his testimony is true, and we can trust his testimony. What does this look like for us today, sitting here 2,000 years later? If the water and the blood were events in history that can't be repeated, we can't see them, How does the Spirit of God still testify? And how do we testify about who Jesus is and what he has done for us? A couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 4. Probably on the same page for you. If you've got the Pew Bible, it's on the same page. You can look there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. John said, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Are you you seeing this connection of the Spirit being in us, abiding in us, and therefore we testify? Jesus said it. John is saying it. The Spirit testifies, and we are agents of bringing that testimony. Christians who are filled with the Spirit are those who bring that testimony. So the question for us, does, this, does the spirit of truth abide in us, and do we testify? How does John talk about testifying? Again, in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we have this idea of of we are abiding in him. He is abiding in us. His spirit dwells in us, and we testify. So whether or not the spirit of truth abides in us, this question leads us into our next section in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Next section is two competing testimonies. And I say two competing testimonies in two different senses. The first sense is the testimony of man versus the testimony of God. We'll get into that. The second sense is believing God versus making God a liar. So let's look at the first one of those. The testimony of man versus the testimony of God. John says, if we receive, in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Okay? Well, John doesn't necessarily say here that this testimony of men is false, that it's an untrue testimony. Uh, He could be referring here to John the Baptist in John chapter 1, who John bore witness and testified about the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. And John said, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Of God, okay. John was a man, so that was a man's testimony. So John, this John, isn't necessarily discounting John the Baptist's testimony and saying, "Well, his testimony doesn't matter because he's just a man." Here, John may be saying, "You believe John the Baptist's testimony, which is right and good, but how much greater is God's own testimony that He has spoken about His Son, when the Father spoke." From heaven, when Jesus was baptized, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. So he could be addressing that type of testimony, or he might be addressing the false teachers. He might be saying that you guys are believing these people who are telling you something that is not true. You're believing testimonies of men when God has already spoken on the matter. Why are you going somewhere? Why, why are you listening to these false teachers when God has already spoken? God has already made it clear. What is the testimony then? Verse 9. This is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Well, he still doesn't tell us exactly what the testimony is, but he says that God has borne this testimony concerning his son. And in the, in the Greek, it reads the, the word testimony and that God has borne is, is the same word. So it's like the testimony that God has testified. It's emphasizing that God is the one who has done it. It's the testimony that he has testified concerning his son. And notice also the Trinitarian emphasis here. The Holy Spirit testifies about who Jesus is. The Father testifies about who Jesus is, and both of these testimonies are about who the Son is. So there's a very Trinitarian emphasis here in what John is talking about. Now the second sense, so that's the first sense of the competing witnesses, man's testimony versus God's testimony. The second sense is of competing testimonies is believing God versus making God a liar. And this idea of making God a liar, we've seen a few different times uh, way back in chapter 1, John said in one ten, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
And here he's saying that if we reject God's testimony that he has borne concerning his son, notice that exact same language in verse 9 and in, in verse 10. It says he has not believed the testimony that he has borne concerning his son, that he makes God a liar. So here the belief and the unbelief are contrasted. What does this look like in our world today? There are a lot of competing ideas. Uh, There are a lot of competing narratives right now in our world. And I think it's helpful to, sometimes I feel overwhelmed by that. I don't don't know about you. There's just, there's so many things that, there's so many belief systems out there. There's so many things, you know, people probably ask you, they ask me like, well, why should I believe in Christianity? Why should I, you know, there's so many things out there. Why should I believe in Jesus? And I think I've, I've mentioned this book uh, before. I've, I've recommended this book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Uh, just a fantastic book of trying to analyze how we can engage people uh, in our world, and especially around this idea of many competing narratives. And he's talking in this section about, uh, calls it the barrier of the buffered self. Basically says how we, we build up these walls and we put up these barriers and, and we, we kind of protect ourselves off and we don't let people in. And he's talking earlier in the book about technology and how we just were very distracted. And he's not saying just throw your phones away, but he's saying we need to, we need to learn to live in this world that there's so many distractions. And then here he's going to talk about the influence of secularism. He says, the barriers to belief created by technological and societal trends toward distraction have been dramatically strengthened by an increasing secularism in the West. Our secular age has produced an explosion of possible belief systems, all of which are endlessly contested and all of which make the idea of transcendent God less conceivable. As a result, our beliefs are more fragile and more individual and less open to outside influence. We are buffered selves, protected behind a barrier of individual choice, rationalism, and a disenchanted world. That one line where he says, our secular age has produced an explosion of possible belief systems all of which are endlessly contested and all of which make the idea of transcendent God less conceivable. This idea of endless belief systems is one of the big challenges that we face. So we need to ask ourselves, who are we going to believe? Or what are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God? That he has spoken by his spirit through his word, that he has given us a certain testimony about his son? Or are we going to believe the world and the messages that are out there? Which John has essentially told us many times, don't believe the world. In chapter, earlier in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John is saying, if you're a Christian, you have overcome the world. Don't go back into believing the lies. Don't go back into believing the things, the world system, what the world has to offer you. So are we going to believe God? Are we going to believe the world? Or as we looked at, are we going to believe ourselves? Are we going to put up walls to keep 
things out and, and maybe let a few things in that we want to, but basically just kind of make up our own belief system. And are we going to live that way? So where in our individual lives, in our world, in this current cultural moment, where are we tempted to believe man's testimony and to reject what God has already testified concerning his son? Where are we tempted to believe something someone else has said or what we've told ourselves and to reject what God has already testified? As I've already said, the pressure on us is, is constant, isn't it? I, mean, I think we all feel it. You turn the news on, scroll through your news app or just have, you know, listening to a TV somewhere. You hear it all over the place. You hear these competing narratives. You hear things that butt up against what we believe the Bible teaches. I was in Appleton at the Y a few weeks ago and like Good Morning America or whatever one of those programs was on and they had the CEO of Airbnb and he was on there promoting some new documentary that had some very political and and ideological things. You can go look it up if you want. But um, he said, I believe that at the core, fundamentally, we are all good. Okay, that was his whole argument about this documentary. And the very next question that the, that the host of the show asks is, um, so what's been going on with all these hidden video cameras that are in all the Airbnbs around? You know, and like, what are you guys doing to stop it? And here I'm going like, this guy thinks we're all good, and his whole company is like being threatened by people who have hidden video cameras in, their, in the place where they're hosting other people, right? Like, hello, like, how do you not see? And we got to be able to pay attention to those things. We got to be able to see those things. I'm not saying we just have to critique every little thing, but like, didn't anyone there see the flat-out contradiction of just those back-to-back issues they were talking about? Or self-autonomy, right? You do you, right? Or it's even in, in the church that can be veiled in a Christian form of become a better you, right? Become a better version of yourself. And we just take the world's ideas about self-improvement and self-autonomy and progress and we just Christianize them. And these are all just veiled attempts to cover up the despair that comes from a, a simply naturalistic approach to life, where this life is all there is. YOLO, right, young people? It's the new thing. It's the mantra of your generation. You only live once, right? Live it up. Get all you can. While you, get all the pleasure you can while you can, because there's no hope beyond the grave you only live once, so live it up. And that denies the promise, the very promise that we are looking at here, that there is hope beyond the grave. That there is a promise of eternal life. Yes, you only live once, but this world is not all that there is. It gets much better. This is what God's testimony about his son promises us. And John is finally going to explain to us what this testimony is that he's been building up this argument about. Verses 11 and 12, one true testimony. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Remember the telephone game? 2,000 years later, this testimony is still true. God has spoken concerning his son. He spoke through his earthly life and his earthly ministry. There were eyewitnesses who told it to the next generation, who wrote it down. He has spoken through his word, through his spirit, and it is a true testimony. The only infallible telephone game in all of history. You have the Son, he goes on to say. You have life. Eternal life, which he talked about in verse 11. This life, this eternal life is in his Son. If you have the Son, if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. You do not have eternal life. It means you will spend eternity in hell separated from God. We don't like to talk about that these days, but John is not pulling any punches here. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. I remember reading this. I was in the back seat of a car with our Campus Crusade directors. I think we were driving to a retreat or something, and I was, I was a brand new Christian, and I was reading this, and I was just like, this is crazy. Like, this is so clear. Like, how do people not see this? And I was just, I just remember like being blown away by like how clear John was being here saying, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life and you're going to die in your sin. And I just felt like I needed to tell everybody about that. It's, I mean, this is one of the clearest passages, I think, in all of scripture about what it means to have eternal life and that Jesus is the only way. To the Father. We're going to be talking a lot more about eternal life next week uh, because that's the that's kind of the how the end of the how the book ends up here. Uh, we've seen First John five thirteen, which is the the next verse and the first verse in the next section we'll look at. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is kind of the theme verse of all of First John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, okay? This is, this is John's big statement of assurance. And then the second to last verse in the, in the book is going to end talking about eternal life again. So we'll be talking a lot about that next week. So John here is pointing to the contrast between those who have the Son and have life and those who do not have the Son, and therefore do not have life. I think one of, the, one of the misconceptions that we think about sometimes is, well, eternal life is like after I die, right? Eternal life starts after the grave. But what did Jesus say in John 17 when he was praying to the Father? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When we know Christ, eternal life starts now. It starts here. So if you're in Christ, you already have eternal life. You are going to, well, we're all going to live forever. But 
You're going to live forever with God in heaven. And it starts now. Okay, so that's eternal life. What does it mean to have the Son? John used similar language earlier in chapter 2, uh, verses 23 to, 20, 23 to 25. He said, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Okay, it's again this theme of believing and confessing and not making God a liar. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The promise that God made to us, the promise that God is confirming by the testimony about his Son through his Spirit is eternal life. Having the Son means abiding in the Son, knowing the Son. Again, these are all themes John has hammered over and over. And having confidence and assurance because of who we are in him. I want to wrap up with one more passage from John's Gospel, which I think is really helpful uh, to help us kind of wrap our minds around what he's saying here. John chapter 3 Uh, The end of John chapter 3 is John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. John 3, starting in verse 31, I'm going to read to verse 36. He who comes from above, speaking about Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Read verse 36 again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As we come to this table, this table is a picture of wrath and life. It's a testimony that God has testified about his son. That whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever receives him has eternal life. We don't get eternal life because we come to this table. We come to this table because we have already believed and we have already received eternal life from God's gracious hand. Coming to this table is evidence that we are those who testify, who say with our lives that we believe the testimony that God has testified about his son. We come to this table because Christ is our only hope. We come because without him we would die 
and the wrath of God would remain upon us. And that is a dreadful thing. But his wrath was poured out on his son at the cross. And we come to celebrate and to remember what God has done for us in sending his son to die in our place. And so this table this morning is open to anyone who has trusted in Christ, anyone who says, I cannot save myself, I cannot be good enough, I cannot earn my salvation, I've done nothing good enough to please God, it's only because Jesus took my place and died in my place that I can come before God, that I can approach this table, that I can eat and take these elements in a worthy manner. So if that's you, if you, have, if you have put your trust in Christ, you are welcome to come to the table. Uh, we'll come down, we'll take the elements and uh, return to our seats where we will all partake them together. Children who are not taking communion, we'll pray for you. And if I could have those who are helping me serve come down at this point.